good morning. Good to see you today. And uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here and just really excited that you're here with us. Same if you're with us at home online, glad that you can be with us today too. Um, hey, how was, how was your week? Was it good? It was, a, it was a pretty boring week as far as events in our country went. Not much happened. Did you pay any attention this week? You living in a cave? I mean, uh, Tuesday night, right? There were a handful of 70-year-old men arguing like toddlers on TV. Did you see that? And uh, yeah, it, was, it was actually kind of sad watching the debate. It was, it was rough. And no matter which side of the aisle you might be watching from, um, I, I don't know about you, but I felt a little bit of embarrassment just watching the way that they talked over one another. They were talking about gentleness. And uh, there was definitely a lack of that fruit of the Spirit on display that night. Um, and then a few days later, uh, we learned that uh, the president and a number of uh, other leaders and his administration have tested positive with the coronavirus. And uh, you saw with that an outpouring of um, some sympathy and compassion, uh, others with a complete lack of gentleness again. But in any case, when that happened, all of a sudden, I don't know about you, but it did put some things in perspective, just that uh, life is short and we're not in control. And no man is in control, no party is in control, no government, no nation God alone is in control, and uh, he has the ability in his power to change the course of human history like that. And we don't know what the outcome is going to be. We don't know uh, what's going to happen with all of this. We don't know what the election holds for us in a few weeks, but we do know the one who's been on the throne long before the election and will be long after. And so we can trust him, and that's good news. You know, um, the prophet Daniel said this, uh, I was reminded of this this week in some of that news, that he said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons, he removes kings, and he sets up kings. Of course, he also raises nations and destroys nations, and he's fully in control, which is a great, great thing. And I I just say all this kind of as a precursor into the message to remind you that no matter what happens, no matter what side you might be on or find yourself leaning uh, as it comes to the election in a month, that after it's all said and done, Jesus is still going to be king. And uh, God is still going to be in control. So don't get your thoughts and your minds tied too much up into everything going on around you. Keep your sights on Jesus. And in fact, whoever is the leader one day, uh, it, Proverbs tells us, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wills. God's still in control and he can do whatever he wants to do and he will. And he'll have his way. So I guess I just say that. I, I have some concern for you, even for myself. Keep uh, your eyes and your hope set on where it ought to be in the coming days and weeks. Um, on Jesus, look up to him. Uh, get your focus off of everything around here. You're, you might be a citizen of the United States, but first and foremost, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a citizen of heaven. And that's home, not this place. In fact, um, sadly, I think a lot of people... Uh, in our world today, they, they get so caught up, and Christians even, get so caught up in, in what they can see and in focusing on and setting their hope on uh, maybe a person or a party or uh, an election 
that they lose sight of who's really in control. And really when we do that, because we're all prone to that, to different degrees in different areas of life, we're no better than the Israelites who set their hope on a golden calf that they could see rather than the God who had rescued them from slavery, who they were to trust by faith. And that calf let them down. And if your eyes are on the things of this world, that will let you down too. So keep your head up. Jesus said, when these things happen, lift up your head. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, one last thing here before we uh, move into the message. Uh, I quoted from Daniel earlier, but also in Daniel chapter four, uh, we read about the, the guy who was the king when Daniel was in exile in Babylon, modern day Iraq. And Nebuchadnezzar, it says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, he said. I got my head about me. I quit focusing on everything else. All of a sudden, everything came into perspective. He's kind of saying, when I looked up and I blessed the Most High, I praised and honored him who lives forever, forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does, does, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So I'm going to get to the actual message here in a second. You get a little pre-sermon today, but we're going to be going into that in a few weeks. Our next series is about the age of outrage we all live in and how as a faithful follower of Jesus do you live in a culture where everybody's irate about something. So all that to say, keep your eyes on Jesus and uh, we're gonna pray even before we head into the message, we're gonna pray uh, for our president, for uh, God to bring healing to him and, and many others. And no matter what side of the political party you're on, God commands us, whoever's in office, to pray for our leaders, even the worst leaders, to pray for them. And we're gonna pray today. We're gonna pray for uh, our nation, which is clearly, in my opinion, in decline. And we're gonna pray for our church. I'm gonna pray for you and for me that we keep our eyes above the fray. We keep it on Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks, Jesus, that you are on the throne. You're king, eternal and forever. And um, Lord, no matter who might hold office at whatever level, Jesus, you're the one who has ultimate authority. And we praise you. We can have comfort and security in that. Uh, Lord, we do pray for our president. We pray for your uh, mercy to him, your blessing upon his life. And uh, we pray that you would heal him and uh, others who are, who are ill and sick with this disease. And uh, Jesus, we pray too, uh, you'd move his heart and the hearts of, uh, of all leaders. Uh, that's like water in your hands, Lord, to, to stir whichever way you will. We pray that you would stir his heart and the hearts of, of others who are in authority over us. Uh, toward things that are honoring to you and that are good toward you and for us. Lord, we pray too um, for our nation uh, that they would see uh, your church being full of the fruit of the Spirit, full of hope and of life, and that in, in seeing that, they turn to you and, and find hope for themselves and joy and peace. And uh, Lord, we pray too, uh, I, I pray for, for the church, for your people and for our church here would you help us to keep our eyes above the fray, to, to lift our eyes to heaven, Jesus, to look to you. And, and might we be able to say like Nebuchadnezzar did, that, that my reason came back to me, that we came to our senses and we saw things for how they are and that we could trust you and honor you and have joy even in the midst of chaos all around. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we look at your word today, 
uh, you'd speak to and through me, you'd uh, ripen that fruit, as we're going to look at today, the fruit of gentleness in our lives uh, before a watching world. Lord, we love you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, I want to uh, show you a picture here. Uh, this is Jerry and Sis Levin. Uh, these two met in the 1970s in Alabama, and uh, each of them have passed away this year. Jerry passed away in February, and his wife passed away uh, in mid-September, September 11th. And uh, they met, uh, she was an advocate for the arts. He was a television journalist in Alabama, and uh, after they met, they, they got married, and uh, in the early 80s then, Jerry actually went to work for this little startup cable news channel called CNN. And he worked in Texas and Washington, D.C. and Chicago. And eventually in uh, late 1983, in December of 1983, uh, he took a job as the Middle East bureau chief in Lebanon. And he moved over there in uh, December of that year. And his wife uh, followed him about a month later. Well, he had only been there for about three months when he was taken hostage by Hezbollah, a terrorist organization in the region. And, and Jerry was um, a Jewish agnostic. He, uh, he wrote a lot about nonviolence and Palestine and Israel. And um, he was taken hostage. And can you imagine how frightening that must have been? And then for his wife, who'd only been there for a couple months, uh, she was warned by the State Department to come home, to leave Lebanon, to come back to the United States, but instead she refused that and she stayed. And her example is pretty incredible. Uh, Sis was actually a follower of Jesus, and her response was incredible. I mean, after he's taken hostage, um, instead of hostility or demands or uh, accusations against the people who held her husband's life ransom, she responded in a totally different way with gentleness. In fact, um, she began praying. And then she began serving people, especially children of that region. And in the city she was in, and even into Syria, she became uh, known, well-known and even became uh, an acquaintance, uh, acquaintance with a, a number of leaders in the region. And it was all because of the way that she loved people and was tender and gentle. Well, at the time, she wasn't really aware of the results of her gentleness and the strength of it, of her tenderness, because um, while she was caring for children, uh, one of the things she did, uh, she actually brought music into this cultural center that was built for the kids. And her husband, while he's in captivity, suddenly, over time, all of a sudden, all the, uh, the crumbs and the small pieces of hard cheese that he would get for food slowly began to be replaced with warm meals with fruit, with uh, all kinds of good things, um, chocolate even that he received. His captors uh, began to bring him extra socks and blankets. They even asked him what he wanted for a Christmas present while he was in captivity. Well, he requested and received the Bible because during his captivity, he actually decided uh, to put his faith in Jesus Christ. He later said that he finally just, he was stuck with his thoughts and he was alone and he came down to the choices, I either believe in God or don't believe in him. He said, I either reject Jesus or I accept him. And he said, so I said, I, I did believe. And he prayed for the first time. Pretty remarkable story. 
Well, his wife didn't know really anything about all of this until they were reunited. But really, it was her gentleness and her tenderness and her kindness towards, and her love towards people in that area that all of a sudden turned hearts even towards her husband. To the point that one night in February, about 11 and a half months after his capture, uh, the, the guards didn't, uh, didn't uh, kind of chain him up or uh, constrain him as tightly and as securely as they normally would. And he was able to slip out. And he tied up his sheets and he, he escaped through a window and he got down and he ran for safety and hid. And then um, what happened is a Syrian soldier came and found him almost smiling and led him to freedom. Now, did he escape or did they let him escape? I think they probably let him escape. And in fact, here's a picture of him after being released, he and his, his wife. And it was because of her gentleness. Peter talks about that, that uh, ladies, in your gentleness, you can change the heart of your husband, you can change the heart of, of others, that that's honoring and pleasing to the Lord. And her, her gentle tenderness um, resulted in his salvation and in his freedom from captivity. It's a pretty remarkable story. They went on to serve the Lord then for the rest of their lives together. You know, gentleness is really a vital piece of our relationships. It's a, it's a huge aspect that God calls us to and that we're to model as, as followers of Jesus to be gentle. Um, but often instead of being gentle with people, we can be harsh or abrupt or defensive. Or maybe that's just me. You ever get that way? You know, um, we can't, and you find, you know, assistant, she didn't like grit her teeth and pull her bootstraps up and say, I'm going to be gentle. Doggone it. I'm going to be gentle today. <laughs> it doesn't work like that, does it? If any of the fruit of the Spirit doesn't work like that, it's gentleness. I mean, instead, what happened is the Holy Spirit grew the fruit of gentleness in her heart, the, the characteristic of who Jesus is, of being gentle and kind and tender. And she lived it out because that's who she was. Now, this can only be produced in us by the Spirit of God. And gentleness, it is a fruit of the Spirit. We're studying the fruit of the Spirit, which is, you know, after you become a Christian, you put your trust in Jesus. Um, Jesus sends his Spirit. The Spirit <clears throat> lives in you and dwells you and, and changes you, makes you more like Jesus over time. And one of the metaphors Scripture uses is that uh, he grows fruit in you. The characteristics, the character of Jesus, that's the fruit. And uh, Paul, in his letter to the churches of Galatia, he says in chapter 5, have you memorized it yet? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness. Gentleness. We're on gentleness today. You only got one more. Next week will be self-control. You'll have all nine down. And of course, I think there's more than just these, but they all kind of form this bouquet of, of who we are to be in Jesus. And we see from Peter, we know I mentioned, uh, I didn't read from him, but just mentioned he talks about your gentleness being a great example and uh, the example of, of, of cis, leaven, and there, there's power in gentleness. And the only way we have that power and harness that power, ultimately, friends, that power is from Jesus. And our power as followers of Jesus is in Jesus Christ. Our power is in Jesus. Now, when you think about gentleness, 
see if I can illustrate this for you. When you think about gentleness, where does gentleness most often show up? To me, it seems like it shows up most often in our words. Our, our words seem to be a great indicator of either uh, the fruit of the spirit of gentleness growing in us or the lack of that fruit growing. And, and our words uh, demonstrate gentleness. I mean, how many of us in this room, you could think of a time in your life where you said something you wish you could take back? You're like, this week, like this morning, on the way to church, like I mouthed off. Like you, you can think of something, can't you? We, we all have those things. An impulsive, harsh word, a sharp tone of voice with our spouse or our kids, rudeness, disrespect towards a coworker, maybe, uh, maybe insults shouted all alone in your car at the other car in front of you that just cut you off. But if they could have heard you, they'd have been offended. Maybe we just unload on someone and finally put them in their place. And it was about time someone did. But then afterwards, you ever do that and then you just feel really guilty about it? Now you're left with this decision, do I just let it go because they kind of deserved it or do I repent and turn back because that's what I'm called to do? Gentleness shows up all the time in our words. It's fundamental to our relationships, especially with people who rub us the wrong way. Gentleness is so important there. And the fruit of the Spirit is so evident there. People who are pushy, who are offensive. Sometimes people who carry around so much pain in their own life that, that you can never, no matter how hard you try, befriend them. Uh, people who lose patience. We lose patience with them for all hosts of reasons. I don't know, increasingly it seems like the rise of social media of, of television, of, of, of media in general, of all those things just seems to work counterintuitively towards the fruit of gentleness. I mean, if you're wanting to really grow gentleness in your life, I would recommend you don't spend uh, all your time on social media, watching cable news, or listening to talk radio. That's <laughs> not going to help you become more gentle. Because in each of those arenas of life, it just seems like, and there's others we could mention too, but People just seem to always be up in arms and irate about something or towards someone and different comments of harshness and biting sarcasm and fill in the blank. But, but friends, that's not who we're called to be. We're not called to be hot-tempered. We're not called to be uh, screaming at someone or about someone, either verbally or just uh, with words we type on Facebook. It's not helpful. And frankly, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's not who you are. So don't live like that. See, gentleness, let's look at maybe a description of gentleness. Gentleness actually is not hot-tempered, it's even-tempered. It's not harsh, it's, it's tender. It doesn't unload on people, it, it, it actually it holds back. It, it keeps passions, Paul calls them youthful passions. Sometimes we just think of that in terms of, of maybe sexual passion, but there's so many more, like anger would be one of those youthful passions of being right all the time. I mean, you've, anybody have teenagers? A youthful passion of being right? No, no, you keep those under control when you're gentle, of, of being humble, of being measured. That's the fruit of gentleness. And, and so gentleness then, it, it, we saw it in the example of, of Cis Levin, it's, it's truly powerful, and it only comes through Jesus. 
And if you want to talk about it in terms of, of words and of the tongue, well, Jesus, uh, his little brother, his half-brother James, look what James writes about the power of the tongue. He says, first off, he starts in chapter three, he says, not many of you should become teachers, brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I, I told him in the first service, that verse scares the snot out of me. <laughs> As a teacher, I, I don't like that verse, but there it is. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, well, then he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Your, your tongue has the power to just uh, set and, and light fires and drop bombs and cause destruction. And all of us, I, I bet there's not one person in this room who hasn't done that at some point in their life. If maybe this week we're just with your words, Something's come out, and you're like, oh, mm, I wish I could put that back because I lit a fire that I didn't want to light. And the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members. It's staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every, see, it's not from the spirit, it's, it's from the enemy. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It is full of deadly poison. See, gentleness with our words, friends, the words we speak, the words we write, Gentleness is expressed so vividly or not through our words. To hold back and be gentle in our words then, as we see from James, it takes power. And the only place you're going to get that power is in Jesus, the power of his spirit. I mean, how many of you, if you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're like, yeah, actually, I can think of times where the Holy Spirit, I just, I, I was ready to unload. Like it was lining up in the back of my head. I had like three pages worth of stuff and it was coming. Here we go. And then the spirit did something just to check my spirit. And I, I couldn't say those words that I really wanted to say or that I was thinking. That's, that's Jesus growing his gentleness, his tenderness, his kindness in you, his fruit. And Jesus is the one who gives us power for that. In fact, Jesus says on a number of occasions that God has given him all authority. That, and, and because he is God, he has power over all things. <clears throat> Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, I'll give you a handful of them. All things have been handed over to me by my father. Matthew 28, 19, all authority, Jesus says, that includes all authority has been given to me. The rest of the New Testament backs it up. Philippians 2, 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Or Romans eleven thirty six. To him and for him and by him are all things. It's all about Jesus. And, and it's through the Holy Spirit then that, that, that Jesus gives us his power. He gives us his power. And the Spirit's powerful. 
In fact, Paul writes to a young guy named Timothy often. Timothy uh, is a pastor, and he, he writes this to Timothy. He says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of, and of love and of self-control. Now, God gives us power, Jesus does, but I just think it's really curious. When Paul writes this to a young pastor, he couples it with the fruit of the spirit because there's power in that too. Power isn't just like standing up for my convictions and staying what I, no, it's, it also includes self-control. It includes love. It includes gentleness. Uh, there's power in these things. We sang that this morning. There's power, wonder-working power, resurrection power in the name of Jesus. Imagine that. Paul, Paul says this in, in Romans as well, that uh, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Do you know anybody who has the power to raise someone back to life? Well, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that resurrection power, is the same power that works within you by the power of the Spirit, helping you to be gentle, to tame your tongue. The Holy Spirit also gave power to Jesus' disciples after his ascension. You will see power, Jesus told them, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when you trust Jesus, his spirit comes to live in you. So that's why Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But it's Christ who lives within me. It's, it's his power in me then that, that grows that fruit of gentleness. It's not me trying really hard to be gentle because when... You ever try that and you just get more angry with people than you were to begin with? You need Jesus' power to change you. You know, maybe this morning you're starting to feel that conviction. You know, you've, um, maybe you've trusted Jesus and you realize, I, Josh, I'm, I'm really harsh with my words. Well, there's good news. The power of the gospel is able to save anyone who would believe. And it's also able to sanctify you, to grow fruit in you. And as you trust him and stay close to Jesus, he's faithful to begin what he, to finish what he started and to grow that fruit of gentleness in you. If you've never trusted Jesus, there's power in the gospel to change you, to make you brand new so that that fruit of the spirit can begin to grow in you. You don't have to try harder. You just need to trust Jesus. He's done all the work. Our power's in Jesus. We're not the source of it. He is. We're just the instrument of it. And his power works through us. He grows his character, his fruit in us. And, and part of that power, then, is this fruit of gentleness. Now, when you think of gentleness... Uh, Jesus is the source of our power and he gives us gentleness, but it might not be like you're thinking of gentleness or at least not like uh, many of us think about gentleness in our culture, that gentleness is not weak. He doesn't give us a gentleness that's weak. He, he gives us a gentleness that's not weak. In fact, we're gonna see a gentleness that's strong. Often in our culture and in so many cultures in the past, gentleness is associated with weakness, cultures have assumed that, especially for a man, right? Like that if you're gentle, that then you're weak or that you have a lack of internal strength. That if you're not, you know, just boisterous and, and bold and brash, that, that mm, he's just kind of weak. But that's not what scripture teaches. I mean, like we read earlier from James, uh, gentleness, especially with, with respect to our tongues, that, that isn't weakness. That takes incredible power. And it's power that you can only have in Jesus. 
And people who are mature in gentleness, they, they pardon, they forgive people who've injured them. Who, they know when to speak a word of correction. They know when to hold that word back. That's gentleness. That's the fruit of gentleness. They know how to rule their spirit, self-control. We'll talk about that next week. Gentleness is this, this, this even-tempered tenderness. And it's, it's a translation uh, when Paul writes, remember the, the New Testament originally was written not in English, but in Greek. And so it has to be translated into English. That's why we have different translations because it's not always a one-to-one translation. And sometimes it's easier to understand from this perspective than this one, that original intent. And so the word here that's translated gentleness as the fruit of the spirit is, is called um, uh, praus is the root of that or proutes. And uh, now you know a Greek word. Aren't you excited? You go home, you're a little bit smarter. You'll forget it tomorrow. It's okay, but bear with me for right now. Just know it's gentleness. And uh, gentleness, this idea, it, it was used by people in Paul's culture to describe uh, those who would tame a wild animal. You might think of it like a racehorse. It, it, it described a, a wild horse maybe that had been tamed. Think of a racehorse that, uh, you know, it gets tamed and there's a bridle in its mouth. And now because it's been tamed and trained, uh, uh, that, that jockey on the back, he can guide that horse wherever he wants it to go. He can. It knows when to run with all of its strength. It knows when to pace itself around the corners, around the track. Christians who've grown in gentleness, it's the same thing. They know and they've learned to be balanced and tempered in their responses. They don't overreact, they don't underreact. They've learned temperance in their responsibilities, their conversation, decisions. They understand when to be assertive and when to keep their mouth shut. It's gentleness. Uh, concerning the fruit of the Spirit, this fruit of gentleness, Chuck Swindoll, he's a, maybe you've heard him on the radio at different times over the years. He's a pastor of a, of a free church like ours, part of the e-free church. And he writes this, he says, immediately we may get the wrong impression. In our rough and rugged individualism, we think of gentleness as weakness, being soft and virtually spineless. Not so, he says, The Greek term is extremely colorful, helping us grasp a correct understanding of why the Lord sees the need for servants to be gentle. Carefully chosen words that soothe strong emotions are referred to as gentle words. Ointment that takes the fever and sting out of a wound is called gentle. He goes on, he says, in one of Plato's works, a child asks the physician to be tender as he treats him. He uses the term gentle. Those who are polite, who have tact and are courteous, who treat others with dignity and respect are called gentle people. So then, he says, gentleness includes being calm and peaceful when surrounded by a heated atmosphere, emitting a soothing... We don't know anything about a heated atmosphere these days, do we? Uh, Emitting a soothing effect on those who may be angry or otherwise beside themselves and possessing tact and gracious courtesy that causes others to retain their self-esteem and dignity. That's gentleness. Well, let's see if we can get a better idea of this word, of what Paul was trying to communicate when he's talking about praus, about prautes, gentleness. In the New Testament, that word, when it's translated into English, it gets translated uh, usually one of three ways. First is gentleness. The second is meekness. The third is humility in the Bible. And so maybe as we look at some of those words, we get a better understanding even of what this gentleness is. Let's talk about meekness first. Meekness is not weakness, It's not weakness. It rhymes with weakness. It's not weakness. Meekness, rather, is actually great power 
and strength under control. It's, it's power under control. Jesus was meek. How much power did Jesus have? All authority. And did he have it under control? Perfectly. Perfectly. Paul writes, again, I mentioned Paul writes a lot to this young pastor named Timothy. And uh, one of the things he writes to about him, uh, he, he writes about uh, being gentle. He says, flee youthful passions. Uh, in other words, you know, anger, lust, all those things. And, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, fruit of the Spirit, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And he continues to coach him. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies you know that they breed quarrels. They breed quarrels. Paul tells him, uh, uh, don't, don't engage with foolishness like that. In fact, he says, uh, the Lord's servant, in other words, you, Timothy, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone. Not, not picking a fight on social media, not gaslighting everybody that's following you just to get a reaction out of them. Don't be quarrelsome. Be kind to everyone. Able to teach patiently enduring evil and correcting his opponents with gentleness. With gentleness, that's that word. With meekness, with correcting them with strength, but how? Under control. Knowing when to push, knowing when to just let it go. Correcting them with gentleness. And see, because when you do that, instead of lighting a fire, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth because it's, it's kindness that leads us to repentance. So it might be our gentleness and kindness that leads someone else. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Well, this isn't the only time Paul tells Timothy that leaders should be gentle. He tells them in 1 Timothy 3, 3, 6, 1, uh, that leaders in the church need to be gentle. I think leaders in general ought to be gentle. Not violent, Paul says, not argumentative and quarrelsome, but gentle. So often our culture causes us not to see gentleness as a requirement for leadership, but often we see gentleness as a detriment to it. That if you're gentle, you're just going to get walked all over. You can't lead. You can't lead. The Bible says the exact opposite. Actually, gentleness is incredible power. And it's a requirement to lead. It's a requirement. In fact, he tells Timothy uh, in both of his letters, we saw it just a little bit ago, that in, in gentleness, he's to actually, rather than be brash and bold and engage in every conflict that comes his way, to flee controversies and arguments, the foolish ones. Don't even engage. Don't even engage in the foolish ones. Don't respond to the bait on social media, Timothy. Don't reply to that passive-aggressive text message. <laughs> Just ignore it. Delete is your friend. Have nothing to do with that or with those people, Paul tells him. But he does say, we just read it, when you do have to correct them, because sometimes you will. Sometimes you need to. When you do it, don't come with both guns blazing. Do it with gentleness and with kindness, and that, that might cause God to lead them to repentance. You might, you know, for us, friends, you, you, I don't know all of your stories. I don't know all of you uh, perfectly, but um, you might have the ability, uh, the mastery of words and of, of thought and of argument to where uh, you, if you were confronted, you could, you could light somebody up like that and have fun doing it and not even think about it. Don't be that guy. 
You don't need to be that way to trap them. But you need to be gentle. You need to be meek, in other words, and keep that power under control. There's a time for that, but there's also many more times you need to keep your powder dry for when it really counts. Be meek, not weak, meek. Keep it under control. Uh, the second, the third word, excuse me, that this word gets translated as gentleness. Uh, meekness is also humility. And humility ultimately is just knowing your place. Before God, to be humble before God is to know that uh, I know my place. I'm, I'm not God. I get into trouble when I, when I try to think of myself as God and I put myself up here with a huge ego. You know, I mean, you've heard people describe that way, right? With their pride, they just think they're God to everybody. God's gift to everybody. Um, no, humility knows my place. I'm not God, I'm, I'm below him. It also knows my place. So sometimes uh, pride takes the form not of just a big ego, but of just no ego. Uh, not no ego, but no esteem of yourself. And no, no even care for who you are. And you see yourself as lower than who God made you to be. And that you're dirt and you're unclean and you're unworthy and unlovely. That's actually pride too. Humility is actually a right estimation of myself. Knowing my place, knowing your place. A right assessment well, humility often, though, when we think of it, we think of it uh, because that's where it seems to demonstrate itself the most is, is like somebody who's not just thinking of themselves way too highly. And in Paul's day, they saw humility then as, you know, when you're, if you're going to lower yourself to where you ought to be and, and under the authorities that you're called to be under in different phases in your life, then uh, that's actually a sign of weakness, they thought. In fact, humility was never seen as a heroic virtue. It was, it was almost always conceived of and perceived of as being a vice. Real men were neither gentle nor humble. They were strong and powerful and dominant. Boasting about your superiority wasn't regarded as bad taste like it is today. It was a carefully cultivated art form because real men are winners. <laughs> right? Well... And they ought to make everybody else know about it. Humility? No. Uh-uh. But look what Paul writes. We might have read this earlier in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, in Ephesians, Ephesians is a really cool letter because what happens in the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul writes uh, the, the first half of it, the first three chapters are all about after you become a Christian, who you are in Christ. It's all about your identity. Here's who you are. You're loved. You're clean. You're new. You're, you're God's child. You're saved. And then he doesn't, he doesn't give any command to the people in the church until he gets to chapter 4. After he's reminded them who they are, then he tells them how to live. See, the world always tells us, no, if you, if you live like this, do enough good things, then you can become this. The gospel says, no, Jesus is making you, he's made you new, now go live like it. It's totally opposite directions. And so he gets to chapter four, I therefore, because of everything, because of who you are, prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Live like who you are. He says, well, how is that, Paul? How am I supposed to live? Who am I? How? Look, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's who you are. You're a follower of Jesus. You know your place, that you are you're loved and 
You're to love others and bear with them. In fact, being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. A focus for any follower of Jesus should be to, to love others and also within the church then to, to foster unity of heart and of mind. You know, we talk about it a lot where we've got closed-fisted things and open-handed things. And the closed-fisted things are things like the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God. He's the only way. He's the Savior, right? He's perfect and sinless and righteous and eternal. And I can't let go of those things without ceasing to be a Christian. And so when it comes to those things being challenged, what am I going to do? I'm going to fight. I'm going to swing the fist with gentleness, of course, right? But firm. On the other hand, there are all the open-handed things like uh, what music should we sing? What color should the carpet be? What time should we meet? How often should we celebrate communion? That's open hand. And so at the end of the day, I can let go of those things, even if I have some strong convictions about it. I can let go of that and be okay with it. Because I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, and, or maybe there isn't a right or wrong on those issues. And I can let go of that. And at the end of the day, I can still maintain unity. What happens in a lot of times in churches, and maybe you've been in churches like this, where uh, it's been in, in, in our past, in our own church, where things that belong in the open hand get closed up in the closed fist and people fight over something that isn't worth fighting about. Paul says, if you live in gentleness by the power of the Spirit, uh, you maintain unity in the body. You get the right things in the right hands. And it's a good thing. And, and gentleness is part of the things, humbleness, humility, meekness that allows that to happen. Well, Last week, we looked at Moses briefly as a great example of faithfulness. He's also a great example of gentleness. And in fact, I'm going to look at the same passage we looked at last week, Numbers chapter 12. Uh, Moses is an incredible example of gentleness and of humility and of meekness. Uh, in fact, l listen to this. Uh, chapter 12 of Numbers. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Miriam and Aaron are Moses' sister and brother. And it says, they spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman, it says. Now imagine, you're at a Thanksgiving dinner, right? You're there with your brother and your sister and your wife or your husband. And all of a sudden, your siblings start speaking ill of your spouse. How's that going to go? That sounds like great Thanksgiving. Can't wait. That's Moses' experience right here, right? His brother and his sister, they're speaking badly against his wife. And then they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Now they start speaking bad about him too. Has he not spoken through us also? And then it says, the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses, verse three, was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Uh, many would agree that Moses is the greatest leader in the Bible, second only to Jesus. And we saw last week that he was uh, the most faithful, and here we see he's the, the most gentle, the most meek, the most humble on the face of the earth at this time. No wonder he's the greatest leader, second to Jesus. Well, with that little sidebar in place, we go, suddenly then the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. So again, put yourself, Thanksgiving dinner, you've got uh, all your extended family there. They start speaking evil 
of you and of your spouse, and then all of a sudden uh, arguments ensue, and then you hear God chime in. Hey, you three, out here, let's chat. <laughs> that ever happened to any of your family, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving dinners with your parents? It did ours. Hey, you three, over here, we got to talk. Well, the Lord uh, suddenly then, he said, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting, and the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent and he called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forward. He said, hear my words. We read this last week. If there's, if there's a prophet among you, then I, Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I, I speak with him in a dream so that then they can communicate for God to the people. He goes, not so with Moses. Moses is faithful in all my house. He's the most faithful. With him, I, I speak mouth to mouth, face to face, clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. He sees me. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. That'd be terrifying if God was rebuking you like that. And it says, verse 10, when the cloud removed... From over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. So after this, Moses' sister Miriam is covered uh, in leprosy, like her skin would have just been white and flaky and just full of disease. And then her brother Aaron sees it, and Aaron turned uh, towards her. He saw that she was leprous, and Aaron said to Moses, Oh, Moses, don't punish us because we've done foolishly and we've sinned. Don't let her be like someone who's dead. Don't, and, and, and probably don't let her die, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Now, if you're Moses, what's your response going to be? Right? Everybody's been speaking evil of you and of your family at Thanksgiving, and then God shows up and he says, all right, all three of you out here, let's talk. And he, he kind of takes your side, and then uh, he makes your sister leprous and sick, punishment. If you're, like, if you're Moses and then your brother says, Moses, don't let this be, what would you say? What are you talking about? She had it coming. It's exactly what I would have done. <laughs> or if you're Moses' wife, what would you have been thinking when you saw that? Yeah, but yeah. check out what Moses does, though. Remember, he's the most meek on the face of the earth. Moses, instead of, of lashing out in harshness of any of those things that, I'll be honest, I, I probably would have. He actually cried to the Lord, God, please heal her. Please, the text says. Now God does eventually heal her. She has to stay outside of the camp for seven days in quarantine, and uh, then she comes back and he heals her. But that's incredible meekness because Moses, as the leader of the one God said is the leader, he had incredible power at that point, didn't he? But he knew his place that ultimately God was in control and he kept his power under control and he was gentle and he actually loved his sister, prayed for her. I don't know about you, but when my brothers got in trouble for something that they did to me, I didn't go pray for them. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you had it coming. How about a little more? Moses is a great example of meekness and gentleness. And that sort of gentleness, friends, it's not a relinquishing of strength. It's not weak. On the contrary, it is power. And Jesus is the source of that power that allows us to be gentle, to be an instrument of his power. And so 
It's strength. Our power is from Jesus who gives us a strength that's, or a gentleness that's not weak. And, and he actually gives us strength, but strength that's not harsh. Strength that's not harsh. True power, true strength in the Lord is not a harshness. Gentleness isn't weakness. It's strength and power, but it's not harsh. It's not self-serving. It's not belittling. In fact, even God, in, in demonstrating his strength and his power to us, he does so with kindness and with gentleness and tenderness. I said it earlier, but Paul says it's his, it's his kindness that leads us to repent, that leads us to turn to him because he is so gentle towards us. Well, we're not going to spend uh, much more time here, but uh, as we wrap up, let's just uh, remember that our power comes from Jesus, and, and he's, he's a great example to us of this kind of strength that's not harsh. First off, in his attitude. In other words, we're to be like Jesus in an attitude of gentleness, an attitude of strength that's not harsh. He's not only, Jesus isn't only the source of our power, he's the perfect example of it. Matthew 11 27 through 30, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. All authority is his. And then so then he goes on and he says, verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I, Jesus says, will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Do you know why? Why does he say that? Because I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, friends, Jesus' added towards, attitude towards you and towards me is one of gentleness and of lowliness of heart, of meekness, of humility, of kindness. And as you turn to him, he doesn't exercise his strength toward us in harshness, but in gentleness. And if you want a great example then of, uh, of this type of attitude, Paul writes about it in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we quoted a, a couple of these verses already this morning, but in, in Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul writes this. He says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition or conceit and harshness, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says, verse five, have this mind among yourselves, this attitude, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Our power is in Jesus. Who? And then he describes this attitude of Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, in other words, though he was God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, grasped, but he emptied himself. Now, now Jesus, you got to understand, Jesus is eternally God. He's one of the Trinity. And what happens at, at his uh, first coming is he, he, he comes as God and he puts on flesh. He's God who's become man. Every other religion would say, no, that man can become God if they do enough good things. Christianity alone says, no, God became man. He put on flesh. And when he did that, he didn't cease being God, but he didn't hold on to his power as God, as something to be grasped. He didn't pull out his God card at every step. In fact, he, he, he lived fully as a human being so that he could be a perfect sacrifice for you and I. 
He lived in step with the Holy Spirit in a way that we're called to, but that we can never do on our own because we're sinful and he wasn't. And he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He emptied himself not of being God, but of accessing his power as God by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, that attitude is yours in Jesus Christ. It is. And then that attitude, that internal attitude, that internal fruit finds its way out in expression to be like Jesus in action. Because Jesus was not only gentle in attitude and humble and meek in attitude, but also in action. In fact, uh, Matthew 12, starting in verse 15, Jesus uh, withdrew from there. Are you aware this withdrew from there? Uh, many followed him and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make himself known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now what we're about to read here is uh, actually from Isaiah chapter 42. And it speaks about Jesus hundreds of years before his life on earth. Uh, it says this, Behold my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Check this out. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. Jesus, you don't read about Jesus getting into many fights, do you? At the times that he did correct things with passion, it was well-deserved. And it was measured. It was meek. It was under control. But he didn't engage in any foolish controversies or quarrels. He didn't cry aloud. And uh, you didn't hear his voice in the streets. He didn't gaslight everybody on Facebook and Twitter and try to ignite all kinds of controversy. In fact, look at verse 20. It says, a bruised reed he will not break. Because this is talking about Jesus coming, and one of the things we know about Jesus coming is that in his second coming, he's coming in strength. He's coming as a conqueror. He's coming to lead justice to victory. He's coming to, to really to, to take over the world, to be the king of kings, the lord of lords, the conqueror of conquerors. But as he comes, look at how he comes. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Now, you read that and you wonder, what, is, what do you mean a bruised reed? Any of you ever play instruments, like in band in school? Anybody play a clarinet or a woodwind instrument and you have a reed on it? And what happens with the reed over time? In this day, uh, many people in Isaiah's day would, play, would have played tunes on reeds. And similarly to a reed, like in a woodwind instrument today, you play it long enough, it gets kind of worn out, kind of mushy. There's not much tone and sound there anymore, and it just kind of wears out. And sometimes they break and you just throw it out. You're done with it. Go on to a new one. Well, Jesus, even though he has incredible strength, incredible power, he doesn't come back with a strength that's harsh. A bruised reed he won't break. And a smoldering wick, like, like a candle that's burned down to the wick where it's just smoldering at the very end, he's not going to quench and stomp it out. His, his strength is measured. 
even some of the things you read about in terms of like end times in the Bible, right? All, over and over in Revelation, God's strength, his wrath is actually measured in how it's poured out. He's under control. He's not flying off the handle. And, and Jesus in his tenderness and his gentleness, he's kind to us. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Finally, friends, we're called to grow up then, to be like this, to be like Jesus, to have that mind, to live a life of, of gentleness that's not weak, but in that strength not to be harsh. And uh, Ephesians chapter four, verse 15, rather, we're to speak the truth in love and grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. As we wrap um, I wonder, how do you wield the power that God has given you? Let's just come back to our illustration at the beginning, the power of the tongue. Are you harsh? Do you use language that belittles people? Are you constantly critical and sarcastic, putting people in their place? Proverbs tells us a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Um, I'll close with this. Uh, I meant to share this at the first service, and I, I kind of skipped over it. When I, when I think of gentleness, I was talking to Hannah after the first service, my wife, and I said, you know, as you think of gentleness, I think of my dad. who My dad passed away about six years ago now. He had brain cancer. He's a tall guy. He was, you know, like 6'3". He was just, he was beefy little overweight. He's a big guy. But he was incredibly gentle. I mean, he was the picture of gentleness. I can never, I can never remember a time growing up where I heard uh, a word come out of his mouth in anger towards me or my, or my mom or my brothers. Now, there were times where he was intense and you knew there was a lot of strength bottled up in there and he'd raise his voice, but I never heard him lash out. Never. That's remarkable. And my dad was not perfect. He was not perfect. But I can never remember that. I mean, uh, he, he was funny too and, and gentle and tender towards me. And I, I think I, I'm able to see that in him and know what it looks like to live as a man who, who hopefully by God's grace can be gentle. Um, one, one, one story that comes to mind even is thinking about him. He would tell us even, you know, when people pick on us at school, He'd say, uh, you can't start any fights. Don't be starting anything. But you can finish it. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe that's not gentle, but I just thought it was funny. And just, I, can, I can hear him saying that, and he was just incredibly gentle to us. You know, uh, my dad was far from perfect, but all of us have, and we're going to sing about this as the worship team comes forward. We have a dad in heaven, a good, good father, who is a, an incredible example to us of of gentleness and of kindness. That he loves you. That in Jesus, he gives you the power to be gentle yourself. Not to be weak, but he gives you strength. And strength to exercise that's not harsh. We're gonna sing toward that end here in a moment. I'm gonna pray. And then we're gonna call it a morning. Let me pray.